as it's printed in the bulletin, it would be verses 1 through 14. But in preparation for today's sermon, I listened and did some studying, read some books, and listened to three or four sermons. And in uh, two or three of the sermons, they began with the same illustration. And I don't think it was original with any of the three men that I listened to. But they made this observation about the book of John. I'll give it to you as I understood it. The book of John is like two things. It's like a pool of water in which a baby can safely paddle. And yet, it's like an ocean in which an elephant can swim. I confess that I find myself this morning, morning gingerly paddling. As I thought of this picture and this illustration, I could not help but think of the delight and the sheer joy I've observed in seeing a baby in a, in a bath or a tub or a small pool just splashing happily. And if you've seen uh, nature pictures, you've seen an elephant as they go into the water and they'll take their trunk and they'll dip in and they'll spray it in the air and you can almost see them smile in delight. Well, the illustration is not so much about whether we're babies or whether we're elephants, but as I understand it, it's about the water. And this morning, it's about the water of the word that meets each of us where we are. We don't have to be scholars. Nothing wrong with being a scholar. I appreciate their abilities, and we learn greatly from them. But our teacher is the Holy Spirit, and he can take the word to the... Uh, the youngest of us in the faith, and he can make it clear and plain. And I hope today that as we look at his word, we will see some things that are clear. Because this is the month in which we observe the first advent of Christ, I'll begin today's sermon, not with verse 1, but verse 14, where we see the embodiment of the eternal word in human flesh. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the right, uh, the Father's side. He has made him known. John is not writing this stoically, without emotion. I mean, I cannot believe that He's speaking of the glory of God. He's speaking of the eternal God who created the heavens and the earth. And he says it nonchalantly. Now, I think he has the heart of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in mind. John is not writing philosophically about some impersonal consciousness, but about the person who has come to give him life and establish his destiny. John is writing about the one he has heard with his own physical ears. John is writing about the one who he has seen with his own physical eyes. And he speaks about the one he has touched with his physical hands. And he says, in 
and in hearing and seeing and touching, he has seen the face of Jesus, in the face of Jesus, the glory of God. It's our heart's desire and prayer this morning that as we paddle around or as we swim in the depths, that the Spirit would open our eyes to behold the glory and the fullness of the grace and truth that is found in the eternal word, the Logos. Let's read our text together, John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, we read, John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He comes after me. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the right, at the Father's side. He has made him known. Over the last couple of Sundays, Ben has been presenting different aspects of the advent of Christ. He has drawn from the book of Colossians and Matthew and Luke. It's common for some to see in Matthew, Matthew is presenting Jesus as the promised Messiah, the anointed of God, Christ the King and his kingdom. Matthew looks back to Abraham and traces the genealogy of Christ to Joseph, making him the legal heir to the throne of David. It is very, a very Jewish book in nature, and its roots are firmly grounded in the Old Testament promises. Mark, on the other hand, doesn't have a genealogy of Christ, but begins with John the forerunner, the messenger who has come to prepare the way of the Lord, in accordance with the Old Testament prophecies that promised that coming. Mark presents Jesus as a suffering servant, as portrayed in Isaiah 53. Mark records Jesus' own words, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. One has observed that John gives no genealogy because slaves, servants, have no need of a genealogy. They just come to serve. Whether that's true and that's what John uh, Mark had in mind or not fits well with the 
sermon. The genealogy of Luke begins with Joseph as the husband of Mary and traces Jesus' ancestry through Mary's bloodline from the line of David, making Jesus the biological heir to the throne of David. Then it carries us all the way back to the first man, Adam. Luke presents Jesus as the son of man, a messianic title from the prophecy of Daniel, and as the son of David. We see this in Luke 3.31. Luke focuses on Jesus' humanity and beautifully details the announcement of his incarnation, his birth, and his early childhood. That leaves us with the fourth gospel. The gospel according to John. Absent is any human genealogy. Absent is an angelic messenger. Absent is a star over Bethlehem. Straw in a manger. Shepherd keeping watch over their angelic choir and an angelic choir announcing peace on earth. So what about John? What lies behind his presentation? Or what is John's purpose in writing another gospel? In my research, I read uh, a section by Leon Morris, and he gives about six or seven reasons and theories uh, for why John was writing his gospel. And then Morris takes us back to the scriptures, and he gives... John's own reason. In chapter 20, we read, Now Jesus did many things, or did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these signs, these wonders, these names, all of the book of John, beginning with this prologue, these things are written so that you might believe. And believing, you may have life in his name. Of course, John is speaking of eternal life, which is wonderful, isn't it? The thoughts of eternal life? Yes, but why? Why the concentration on eternal life? Well, for one, it's certainly not that we may live as we please without fear of judgment and hell. No, John gives the answer in his first letter. He says, in which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. How tragic it is that some, often too many people in the Christian church can point back to some time back to some time in the past where they made a decision for Christ, or they invited Jesus into their heart, or they received, they did something, and yet today he's as distant in some ways as he was before. We have been saved. We have been born again. We have received uh, eternal life that we might have fellowship. We might have <coughs> communion with the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit, not just in the future, but here this morning. Like the other gospel writers, John is wed to the word, the scriptures, as delivered to the fathers by the prophecies, or the prophets. John presses back beyond Mary, back beyond David, back beyond Abraham, and back <coughs> beyond Adam. We might say that John began where Luke ends, with God. In the beginning was the Word, 
And we are speaking of the eternal word of God personified. But why does John use the word, the word? Okay? The Hebrew word, davar, is associated in the Old Testament with all the wonderful and powerful acts of God through his word in creation, his word in revelation, his word in judgment, and his word in deliverance. And Genesis' spirit hovers over the darkness and the chaos of the world, the deep, and God speaks, and all things that are apart from himself become into existence. I believe from the very beginning, once he pronounced, this is good, this creation, that the creation began to speak. I don't know who heard it in that first day, but the creation was speaking and proclaiming. The psalmist tells us in Psalms 17 that it began to reveal the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. But the psalmist goes on to speak of greater words than what nature can provide. He says in that chapter 19, words, he uses, he says the words that are perfect, and they revive the soul. Words that are sure and give wisdom. Words that are right and rejoice the heart. Words that are pure and enlightened. All these and many more are the eternal words of the eternal word that is <clears throat> from creation. The psalmist goes on to tell us that these words are to be desired much more than gold, which speaks of earthly wealth. They're to be desired much more than honey dripping from the honeycomb, which speaks perhaps of earthly pleasure. Why is the word of God precious? Jesus gives the answer. In John 5, 39, these are they which testify of me. Many reasons are given for why Jesus uses the word as a name for Jesus. Some have said that a man is the summation of his thoughts and deeds and feelings. Okay. See someone shaking their head. Amen. Uh, true or false? I see a negative false. At most, as, at most, everything else has its origin, didn't originate with me, so I'm leaning heavily on an illustration by someone else. Let's look at these thoughts, deeds, and emotions. I don't know where it came from originally, but I heard someone say, words are the clothes of ideas. <clears throat> There's no way you can know what I'm thinking unless I express it to you in words, or write words, illustrate some way. I have to communicate to you my thoughts, or else they're hidden. In his word, the scriptures, God has revealed his thoughts, his plans, and his purposes in and through his son, the eternal word. This may or not <clears throat> be Brother Charlie's, I didn't warn you about this, Charlie's favorite text, but I've heard him quote it often. From Isaiah 5, 5, 9 through 11, 55, 9 through 11. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth fruit and sprout, 
giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish the purpose for which I have sent it. Second, deeds. Say I see you coming in late this morning. What am I to make of it? How am I to understand this deed? Perhaps I say, well, maybe he's just lazy or she's just lazy. Or maybe you're exhausted from working so hard during the work week to provide for your family. Maybe you're not a good planner. You're a procrastinator. You don't keep track of time. And it comes out that you're, you're late. Or maybe you are a meticulous planner and always designate adequate time to get to church on time. But this morning, you passed a car with a flat tire beside the road, and you happen to notice that the driver was a little old man, a little old lady, either way. So you pull over and you stop and you roll up your sleeves and, and you help. Deeds, just the observation of deeds do not give us, we need words to understand what the deeds are for and about. Third feelings. Take the above example of the flat tire. By observation, I don't know what you were thinking when you stopped to help or how you felt about it. Was it reluctant duty or was it willing delight? I may see you crying and not know if these are tears of joy or tears of sorrow. Emotions, just sheer expression of emotions doesn't do it for us. It takes words. God is a communicator. He is a revealer. And this word is his revelation of himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to us. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book entitled, He is There and He is Not Silent. Of all of the things that we can say about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in concert together they work to reveal themselves to us and reveal ourselves in need of them. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of of his power. I'm amused by and kind of identified with Mark Twain. He's been credited with saying, it's not the things about the Bible that tell me, that what the Bible tells me that bothers me. What bothers me is what the Bible tells me. In other words, it's not the things that I don't understand that worry me, but it's the things that are clear and I understand that worry me. Deuteronomy begins with, Deuteronomy 29 begins with this verse. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel. In the land of Moab, besides, besides the covenant that he made with them in Horeb. He ends the chapter this way. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things that are revealed belong to us. It was the things that revealed that bothered Mark Twain. And oftentimes it's the things that reveal that are revealed that bother us. But they're revealed for a purpose. They're revealed 
They are revealed and they belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. I could go on and on with scriptures that elevate and exalt the word of God. It is just, a, it is just as fitting then to call Jesus the word as it is to call him the suffering servant, the Christ, God's anointed, the son of man, the son of David, and even the son of God. For we know none of these apart from his speaking to us through his word, and especially his word made flesh. And so I returned to where I started. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as the only son from the Father, full of truth and grace. Now, it's not my intention this morning to skip over the other verses that speak of the word as creator, as life, his light. Perhaps sometime in the future we'll come back to these and take them together or one by one. But this morning I want to take a minute to focus on the words and the word became flesh. And especially the idea it dwelt among us. We know that it was necessary for our salvation for Jesus to take on flesh so that he might fulfill his in his humanity the righteousness of God and become the bearer of the penalty of our sins. But if we might dare say it, there is an end goal demonstrated in the text is the, is the heart of the triune God, not just for the 33 years that Christ was upon the earth, but for all eternity. What a wonder that the eternal word would take on flesh, and not only that, but would choose to dwell among us so that we might see his glory. John has taken us back in his opening statements to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, Jesus, was God. He was in the beginning with God. Here we have an ocean for an elephant to swim in, but like a child, I know what he says, even though I can't exhaust the depths of its meaning. First, I understand what it means to be with someone, for two persons to be with each other. To be with each other, there has to be two persons. Secondly, I understand that John is asserting that the word, the Logos, that Jesus is God. Though our Muslim and Jewish and Jehovah Witness friends have a way of working around this, like a child dependent upon her parents for everything, I'm dependent on the word and stand on the shoulders of the thousands of saints that have gone before who have developed the doctrine of the Trinity and preserved it for us. It's from these, the accumulation of these doctrines, the battles that were fought, the councils that were held, that we can come this morning with confidence uh, in the word that we study, that, that we're... We are fenced in by sound doctrine. As creatures, we will never become God or even many gods. But today and forevermore, we who have received him and believed in his name have done so because we have been born again. We have been born from above by the will of God. It began with the creation of mankind as represented in Adam. God spoke to him, and God blessed him. When I'm saying it began, 
this journey of fellowshipping and union and communion with his creatures. God blessed him. God instructed Adam. God warned Adam. This communion continued for a while. As pictured in the third chapter where we see the Lord walking in the cool of the evening. Coming to, and speaking and calling out Adam's name. But from his last visit, man had done something. Man had violated God's trust and God's instructions to him. So man flees from God. He covers, he tries to cover himself in the forest. He uses it as a hiding place and he takes the silliness of some leaves to cover his nakedness. God came unto his own and that garden in his own did not receive him or welcome him. Love had been replaced by fear and light had been replaced with darkness. When the communion was broken by temptation, unbelief, and acts of treason, the heart and the eternal purpose of God continued to push him according to his own will and counsel to seek and to save and restore the communion and fellowship that he had with his image bearers. His desire and his, internal, and his eternal purpose was that we, man, might be with him. Man since then has been running and hiding from God, or worse yet, has been trying to de-God God by, becoming, by coming to him by, in his own terms and by his own means, thinking themselves to be wise, they have become fools. That's, that's the seriousness of sin. At the heart of it is the de-godding of God and the God-making of ourselves. And so we can come by our own means, our own strength, our own works. It, and as you know, it does not work. It is man who turns away and God who so faithfully seeks. God seeks not because he has some desperate need, but because he lovingly and graciously knows how desperately we need him. We were created with that need. We were created to glorify him. We were created to enjoy him forever. We were created to worship him. We were created to enjoy the fellowship that once was reserved for the Trinity in eternity past. Faithful to his promise to Adam and Eve who embody mankind, God chooses Abraham and promise him blessings and a dwelling place and the privilege of being an instrument of blessing to the nations. It's through the seed of Abraham and David and down through Mary that the Savior came and was born into the world. God continues his relationship with his covenant people by establishing a tent of meeting, a dwelling place for God to dwell in the middle of his people. And he traversed with them as a cloud, of, as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He granted Solomon the privilege to build a temple, and yet that temple was destroyed. Jesus is working now in building his church, drawing from every kindred, tongue, and tribe a people to himself. These are the living stones that he is making a new temple, an everlasting temple. It says in Ephesians, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Not, <clears throat> note, I think it is safe to say that initially John did not see Christ in his glory as he dwelt with him in his ministry, earthly ministry. Though John was a participant of the transfiguration of Christ, it was transitory. It only lasted for a brief moment. Yet it was upon the resurrection that the humility and the ignominy of the cross was replaced with the power and the splendor of Christ in his resurrection. This morning we have been invited to meet with God and to hear his voice. There are more than two of us, and he is in our midst. He is in this place. He is in his place of honor, and our focus should be upon him. Through the preached word, the hymns, and the prayers, we have confessed to each other his worth and his right to be worshipped. This is not something that we can create, that I can create, that we can muster up or work up in our own flesh, but we are dependent upon the, his faithfulness to create the right worship in us by the power of his spirit, the spirit of truth. If you remember back to John 17, where we had uh, three sermons there, Jesus' high priestly prayer, we observed that Jesus prayed for us that we, along with all the saints in history who belong to him, might be with him in order that we might see his unveiled glory. Now, in our, by faith this morning, we can speak to each other. And I hope it's true with you that there, we get glimpses, even though it's in a, as through a dark dimly, we, and behind the veil, we get glimpses of the glory and the majesty of the everlasting word. It's not irony, but divine privilege that gave John the vision or the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so here we have it. We read it and we return to Genesis to Revelation many times. And here it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Boy, that's an ocean for an elephant to swim in. Oh, the depths of the wonder and the beauty of the concepts too great for us to take in. We look at the Grand Canyon or the Tetons or Mount Everest or the mighty oceans and we see the uh, power of nature in a thunderstorm or uh, the beauty of nature in snowfall and all of these things are sometimes we're left breathless. Vivian and I walk uh, every morning and usually it's before the sun comes up and at some point in time the sun will come up and the sky in the winter, the sunsets and the sunrises are glorious. And they're glorious because God has given us eyes to see. And we understand that this is not by chance or uh, some accident, uh, but that God, with purpose and plan, created this earth and put us upon it, knowing that we would sin. 
planning from eternity past to redeem a people unto himself, that we may dwell with him forever. It would be nice to end there, but there's another part of the text. It says that the word came into the world, the world that he had created. But the world, it didn't know him. It didn't understand. And it's not because of ignorance, because he reveals himself. Romans tells us that what can be known, two things can be known about God, because God in creation had revealed it to man. It also tells us in Romans the reason that people don't know him and didn't know him is because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And even worse, he came to his own covenant people. And they didn't welcome him. They didn't receive him. Speaking again now in broad generalizations because there's a little secret word there that says, but all, it doesn't matter if they're wealthy or they're poor or they're, it doesn't matter. All who received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And this is not by the will of man or the power of man, but it's by the will of God. Does it take your breath away to know that the eternal God who created the heavens and the earth desired to give you breath and to give you life and to, and to, and to dwell with you and bring you into fellowship with him for all eternity? Of course, it's silly. Unless a spirit, that life-giving spirit, has reached down and opened blinded eyes and given life to a dead heart so that we might see, that we might see the wonders of who he is and who he is to us. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, again, we pray that you would be so gracious as to open our eyes and open our hearts and illumine our minds and reveal yourself to us and draw us to yourself. Father, that you would give us living hearts that are welcome you and are dependent upon you, that are desiring to serve and to live for you. And we pray this again, Father, to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.